Uh, okay, welcome. Thanks everybody for being here today. We're talking about the resurrection today, and uh, we're uh, my my path through this material is a little bit winding, and um, I'm not necessarily trying to make one point. I think the resurrection is something that's multifaceted, and we're just going to kind of uh, hit some some highlights as we go. And it might it might feel a little bit winding this morning. I need to put this somewhere. And there we go. Great. Yeah, I'm going to put it in my pocket. <clears throat> All right, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the resurrection today, which there is uh, no greater topic in my mind to talk about, which Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those uh, also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And so, uh, you know, here we see in 1 Corinthians, so I've got to find my notes for this class here because I'm not sure what I'm saying at the, at the moment. Uh, the centrality of the resurrection, right? So our whole faith, our whole lives are built around the resurrection. All right, so what is the resurrection? Lean over to somebody next to you and, and describe what resurrection is. What is resurrection? Okay. And let me suggest it may be not quite as simple as you think, but I, I do think it's fairly simple. All right. What's resurrection? You don't have to whisper. You can talk. All right, let's jump in. Uh, just background, the resurrection's in all four Gospels, as you're aware. It's, it's also rife throughout the rest of the New Testament. It is foreshadowed, I would say, in the Old Testament as well. And so it is central to our faith. And we're going to talk a little bit today about what it is, what is resurrection really, and what does it really mean, what does it really mean for you. You remember uh, Pinocchio? And uh, how can you forget? And Pinocchio's dad, Anybody? Geppetto, yeah, that's right. And so Pinocchio is really all about the gospel. It's really all about resurrection. And uh, you remember Pinocchio and Geppetto. What did Pinocchio want? Yeah, to become a real boy. He wants to be a real boy. And so what we see in Pinocchio is that Pinocchio has a type of life in him, right? Because he, he's like a talking doll, right? He has a type of life in him, but it's only like real life. Okay, it is, it is not enough like real life to satisfy him, but it's enough to make him desire more. Right? Like the life that Pinocchio has in him, which is different than the life that most toys have in him, is not real life, and he can tell it. Pinocchio knows. He wants to be a real boy, and he is not currently a real boy. And so that's really, in some ways, the human condition, that our lives are like the life of God, but only enough like it to make us desire more, uh, not enough to satisfy. And so um, Charles Taylor's written this really important book called The Secular Age. And in it, it's like 900 pages. I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, but most people think it's like the most significant philosophical work to be written in the last maybe century, but certainly in the last 20, 30 years. And he says that, that all humans, everyone, 
is haunted by transcendence. That's the language that he uses. And, uh, and, and then we see that in Pinocchio's example, that all of us recognize that there is more out there and we see traces of that, but we, we struggle to put it into language and articulate what it is that's actually haunting us. And so what we often do is we attempt to satisfy that haunting or that longing in a variety of ways with what we spend money on, with what we do, with our family lives, et cetera. But all of those things ultimately don't satisfy that there's something else we're being haunted by. And we see that in Pinocchio's life, that he's got some kind of life in him, but it's not, it's not real life. I just lost my notes again. Um, sorry. Here we go. So, okay, remember Pinocchio. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis says about this. I used this recently. It's so good. I'm going I'm to use it again here tonight. This is what C.S. Lewis says this, and he's talking about Jesus, the only begotten son. Okay, you know that language of begot, begotten son? How do you beget something? We're not going to get into the details, right? Okay, the only begotten son of God. And this is what he says about that word and why that word's um, important. And it's going to set up what we're going to say about resurrection today. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man may make a statue, which is very like a man indeed, think Pinocchio, but of course, it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think it is not alive. What God begets is God. Okay, think Jesus. Just as what man begets is man. Think your children, my children. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not a man. This is why men are not the sons of God in the sense that Christ is. And we're, we're going to talk about this in a minute. They may be like God in certain ways. They have the kind of life in them that, that is like the kind of life in God, but not complete. So they may be like God in certain ways, but they are not, the same, they are not things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. Not of. In the same way, man has the shape or the likeness of God, but he has not got the kind of life that God has in him. So what's Lewis saying? Okay, all of us have some kind of life. Obviously, we're breathing, we're thinking, and we're talking, but that life ultimately doesn't satisfy. It points us to some kind of life that would be better, and that that's the kind of life that we believe is in God. And... Um, uh, if that's true, then what do we need to access that kind of life in God? And, and this is kind of setting up this idea of resurrection. It's, it's not just coming back to life. It's a different kind of life. So you remember Pinocchio here. Let's watch his resurrection. Prove 
So uh, what I love about that scene, it, well, in this resurrection scene of Pinocchio, is that it's not just that he comes back to life with the same life he had, right? He comes back as a real boy, so he's, he is fundamentally different, right? His, the, the nature of his life has changed. And Geppetto's response is, what does he say? This is worthy of what? Celebration, right? I love that scene of them partying. I was listening to a podcast recently, and um, it was in, a guy named N.T. Wright. And he made this point about resurrection, and he's, he was looking at Luke 15. And in Luke 15, anybody know what, what famous story is in Luke 15? Yeah, the lost son or the prodigal son. And then you be, so that story is actually surrounded by two other stories about things that are lost. So you have the shepherd who loses a sheep, right? And he goes searching to, to find the sheep. You have the woman who loses her coin. She turns over the whole house to find her coin. And then you've got the father who loses his son and whose son comes back. So do, do you know the commonality of all three stories? Okay, the obvious commonality is something's lost. What's the other commonality? They celebrate every time. Every time. So when the, the shepherd finds his lost sheep, he tells all his, his friends and neighbors, it says, and says, what does he say? Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. When the um, woman finds her coin, she tells her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And then when the son comes back, and this is where we get to that resurrection point. In 1532 of Luke, he says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so he, you know, he's using the language of resurrection in that story that we often don't think about resurrection because, of course, the son didn't die. But he celebrates that he's got this new life. And N.T. Wright said that, you know, when Christians, what, what he said was that, like, we do, um, he talked about the difference between our celebration of Lent and our celebration of, Christ, or of Easter. And that, um, and we don't, Church of Christ haven't historically done a lot with Lent, but most of the Christian world takes Lent very seriously. And for 40 days, you give up stuff. It's, you, it's a very somber attitude. It's this really sacrificial time. And then you have Easter, and it's just one day of celebration, right? And it's kind of a reserved celebration where everybody's like, he is risen, he is risen indeed, you know, like this. And, and Wright's point was that you have this, the brother who hears this party going on, and he's like, what's this cause for celebration? And he's like, your, your brother was dead and is alive again. And Wright's point was that Christians should be overcome with celebration every time we see the resurrection. And that's why people should want to join the party because they see we're celebrating. And they're like, ooh, I want to be part of that. Right? But when they come to us and we're so somber and, and there's, not, there's not much celebration or joy when we see new life around us. Okay. Um, so, so C.S. Lewis has this great, this great quote right here, thinking again about Pinocchio and that, Man can make a, something that looks like a man, a statue, in the same way that God can make something that is not God. But, the, but the, the reality of resurrection is what he says here. We are the statues, so we are not like God. And there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are some get, someday going to come to life. And if that's going to happen, it's going to be through resurrection. All right. So now just what is resurrection? This was that question I asked you to begin with. Okay. So let me submit to you two stories here. The first is of the resurrection of Lazarus. We're going to qualify that word here in a second. And the, sec the second is of the resurrection of Jesus. So somebody who can read real loud, read the, the section there under Lazarus, and then somebody else who can read real loud, read the section under Jesus. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Perfect. Somebody else read under Jesus there. 
when Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Okay, so did the same thing happen to both Lazarus and Jesus? Lazarus is dead, four days dead. Jesus is dead, three days dead. Both come back to life. So did the same thing happen? No. Okay, what's different? Jesus came back different and glorified and changed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Anybody add to that? What's different? Jesus had to call Lazarus out. Jesus rose on the throne. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think through the power of the Father... The, you know, the Father raises Jesus, but yes, we, we're going to say they're one and the same. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I think Lazarus still had, like, death all over him. He had those, those strips of linen on him. Yeah. The cloth around his face, and, and it makes it really obvious in the Scripture that that was left in there for a reason. Yeah. And then Jesus left it all in him. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So in, there is this major clue here in John's Gospel. It's, it's worth pointing out that these are both in John. That what happens to Lazarus is really different than what happens to Jesus, and the clue is in the burial cloth. Because what do the burial cloths symbolize? Death, right? When you die, you get wrapped in these, these, these cloths. You look like a mummy. You're wrapped up, and it's to, uh, they wrap you with spices and preservatives, so it's to preserve your body, your body to keep you from stinking. But you're, ultimately, you're going to start stinking, right? But those, what those cloths represent is death. And what's fascinating when Lazarus comes up out of the grave is that he comes out like a mummy and he's stumbling. And Jesus has to say, hey, somebody go cut those off of him because he's going to fall and hurt himself, right? And I just write, you know, rose him from the dead. That's going to be your whole thing if he bangs his head, right? Whereas Jesus, when he is resurrected, the cloths are, are removed. They're laying there. And it is really symbolic that what's happened to Lazarus and what's happened to Jesus are two different things. So we might say that Lazarus is resuscitated. Now, given he, he was dead a long time, but death is still on him. So we don't know exactly what happens to Lazarus after this, except that we know he died. <laughs> right? If, if Lazarus had, had been called up into heaven, we would have known about that. So he died again. He, so he got a few extra years, but he died again. Whereas Jesus does not die again. Death can never touch him. His body is fundamentally changed. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it like this. Jesus had put on the imperishable. He had put on immortality, which are the, the things that we're longing to put on. He had a new kind of life. Death wasn't going to touch him anymore. So we might say, again, Lazarus was resuscitated, but Jesus is resurrected. And, it's, and the point there is when we say, what is resurrection? It's not just moving from life to death to life again. It's moving from old life through death to new life, to a different kind of life in which you'll never die again. Any questions on that? Isn't that kind of cool? Ever seen that? I thought it was kind of cool. Is that, I mean, is that, maybe you're about to, is that theology spelled out explicitly? I mean, I feel like it's part of it. <clears throat> yeah, so um, we're going to look at that okay. next. And so um, this was my attempt at artwork that I realized I could have just drawn on the board. It's been about <laughs> 45 minutes building this PowerPoint slide here. And, um, but I think this is in essence what the um, resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus does on our behalf. And, and you can't separate the cross and the resurrection. Um, I'm going to try to explain this in a way. It, ultimately, this is one of those things. Uh, Lewis has this chapter in Mere Christianity that he talks about theology. And he's like, you can take it or leave it. Um, 
you know, it's worth thinking about. I think it's important to think about, but if you want to skip this chapter, go ahead. And this may be one of those like five minute sections that if you want to tune out, you can. It's not, it's not going to change anything for you. You will, you will still be resurrected, right? If you belong to Jesus Christ. So whether you get this or not, um, doesn't really matter. So look at, but this is one way of thinking about the condition that you and I are all in. So when I, historically, when I read the Gospels and I read the New Testament, I had a really hard time understanding whether the enemy is death or the enemy is sin. You know what I'm talking about? Like both those things seem to loom large in the New Testament, and it is hard to understand which is actually the enemy and what the relationship is to each other. Similarly, am am I primarily after forgiveness or am I primarily after new life, what we might call resurrection, right? And so, how, so you've got those four pieces, death, sin, forgiveness, and new life. And how do those all fit together? And I was reading a book recently, and I like the way she put it. I don't know if this is right or not, but it resonates with me. And she talked about the um, four boxes, okay? But that two of those boxes are bigger, two of those boxes are smaller and located inside the bigger boxes. And so inside the big box of death, which she would describe as our real enemy, is sin, okay? Which leads to what? death, right? Okay. And so where we all find ourselves, where the human world finds itself, is trapped in this little box of sin trying to break out inside of this bigger box of death. The death is wrapped around us by the power of sin, suffocating the life out of us. So what we need is we need to move over into the forgiveness box, which is conveniently located in the new life box. What we really long for is new life. It would not be enough if we were just forgiven because then we would still be surrounded by death. We need to be inside that forgiveness box, inside of the new life box. So how do we move, how do we move through those? Well, Colossians 2 puts it like this. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. And this is after in verses 10 about baptism. So in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And that's why I was talking about God the Father raising Jesus. The language of Jesus' resurrection is always passive. He's raised by the power of God. So it's in moving. Okay, so uh, I, wanna, I don't want to describe this. <clears throat> So, so right, right up here, that's the waters of baptism. You like that? Those are scissors, which are used for what? Circumcision. circumcision. I don't know if the scissors actually look like that. I was never in the room when they circumcised our boys, uh, but I was always really nervous about it. And this is um, the cross. Okay, so what happens, what Paul's describing here in Colossians 2 is that when you are baptized, you're baptized into what? Death. So you go under the water of baptism, and you are baptized into death. And so what happens in your baptism is that death is cut off of you. It's, it's the circumcision that you and I all experience, right? So it's no longer a physical circumcision, but there is a real power wrapped around you and I. And so when we go through under the water into the cross, into the death of Jesus, into the tomb of Jesus, there are scissors there in the water, which is kind of a scary image, Right? But that as we are coming up out of that water, that is all being cut away from us, and we are deposited not only into new life, but in this smaller forgiveness box, in this bigger box of new life. Any questions about that? Again, this is one of those things you can just take it or leave it.
That to me makes everything make sense. And y'all are just like, oh yeah, that's old hat, Eric. No big deal. No, that's great. Um, you can't really just take it or leave it though. You know, I think it's pretty important. Right, it's central. So this is what's happening when you describe what's happening in baptism. That you're being circumcised. That's why in the same way that circumcision was a physical act that had spiritual ramifications marking people for the community of God, that's what we believe. Something happens when you're baptized, a physical thing, right? That you are circumcised, that the spiritual stuff is cut away from you, and you, you've got new life. Okay. I try to talk about this, not, not as complex, with a, um, at a youth retreat I did a couple weeks ago. Y'all, I got to tell you this. So... <laughs> My, my friend who's the youth minister at this church, he's an old friend, we go back to college together. So I'm like talking about circumcision, I'm like, we're not gonna get into the details on circumcision, but it's a cutting. And God is cutting off this sinful, dead flesh from you. And this junior high kid leans over to his youth minister and goes, what is circumcision? And I was like, oh no. Like I just totally, I'm gonna get some letters from these parents, right? <laughs> about what we're talking about. Okay, so y'all know what circumcision is. Okay. Can, can I just add? Yeah. Sorry, Brian. No, that's good. I think it's fun fun's probably the wrong word, but I guess beautiful maybe is better, mm. how you take a lot of Old Testament imagery and you sort of wrap it up as an act of baptism. I mm. obviously know this, but yeah. you know, water in terms of just the ritual washing, but also like the blood and how that was going to cleanse the world, and then of course circumcision was something they knew. But even yep. just like images of the cross and how they show up in terms of like the caduceus when it, you know, the people had been bitten by snakes. Yes. And also just like um, was it Aaron, you know, stretching his arms out to save the people and there's all these like images that kind of wrap up in this one thing that all represent this right safety from from death to life. right right yeah all those images aren't ab- are, are not abandoned they're taken up in the waters of baptism right and in our other imagery that we have in the church and such yeah clint well i think this is really good too and what kyle was saying is there's so many words that are like theological words right theological concepts that maybe make sense to people who study theology uh, but, you know, down on the ground level where you have Christians trying to, you know, live the way, we, you know, we want to live for God, this type of picture, I think, distills it down to just, like, it's simple, this is what it is. Yeah. And you can step away from, like, you know, theological buzzwords or whatever. Sure. This is just a simple thing. Sure, sure, absolutely. So if you go back a slide, you've got this language of the, the grave clothes, right? So that's what you're seeing, right? Lazarus, those clothes are not cut off, but on Jesus... They're, they're cut away. And, and that's symbolic of what we're describing here in these pictures, that the death that is wrapped around all of us is cut away from us. It's no longer honest. It's circumcised. Okay, yeah. I think the imagery here is a great way of explaining it, especially to those that downplay the significance of baptism. Mm. You know, yeah. we, you, we run into people that, that think that baptism is simply something ceremonial that you do to reflect what has already taken place right, inside right. of you when you say a sinner's prayer. Yep. And I think this is, and I think you know, churches of Christ have kind of been bad at marketing, so to speak. Yes. The importance of baptism. Yes. Um, and so it comes off as, and people think it comes off as something we do to earn our place. Right. Legalistic. But this imagery yeah. is so much better, um, and it's something that I haven't really considered all that much or thought of as a great way to really explain to those that that are stuck on the issue of baptism yes. as how you can't have this life and forgiveness and it's cutting away without baptism. Yes. So, and one of the big pieces of resurrection that we're going to talk about in a second is that it's not just a spirit or a soul, it's a body that's being raised. And so, so again, like the language of um, baptism only reflecting an inward reality or something optional, whereas I'm good with God if, you know, 
and uh, you know, I, I still consider those Christians partners in the work of God's kingdom. But I'm not going to give up the centrality of baptism because I think something happens to our bodies, and those same bodies are going to be raised, right? So it, it, if resurrection wasn't embodied, then you could make the argument that nothing that happens with our bodies really matters because it's just our spirit or soul. Well, that's one of the oldest heresies that we know of. It's called Gnosticism, that our souls and our bodies are separate. Okay. Sorry, we're, we're digressing. Great point. So our promise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And the point here is there is a present reality. He has given, he has given us, past tense, new birth into a living hope. So then we're turning towards the future through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. Again, that would be a future reality that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Um, let me pick up. So currently, all who look on Jesus, who have been baptized into Jesus, have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, Christ has earned for us a new future that is just like his own that we see in the resurrection of Jesus. Although our bodies are not yet like his body, our spirits have already been made alive with that new resurrection power. And the way that the resurrection works is what has been true of our spirits. It's not going to separate from our bodies. will ultimately become true of our bodies. Think Pinocchio, right? His, his body needed to be changed as well. He loses the donkey ears, right, and becomes this new body. Remember, um, I think about in Numbers 13, you have the image of, we're going to switch here to fruit, um, that the spies are sent out into the promised land. Do you remember what they bring back with them? fruit from the promised land and they they eat that fruit in the desert and there's some degree to which that's a a good symbolism of what's happening with us in resurrection that we receive this fruit from the promised land currently and we rejoice and celebrate in that fruit although we are not yet currently living in the promised land entirely does that make sense all right it's good if that works for you then great if not no sweat Uh, So this is the promise. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. My dad preached on this passage at my grandmother's funeral when I was in high school. And it's the, you know, I listen to my dad preach for um, 20 years, I guess, something like that. And it is the most... um, a memorable thing I heard my dad say in all those years, and partly that was because of the context, and partly it was so revelatory to me. He talked about Jesus being the first fruits, and at the time I was despondent and, and hurting because my grandmother had passed, and he got up there and used this language of the first fruits, and he talked about the apple, not a Granny Smith, but a normal apple that moves from being green to red, right? And in Jesus, we see the first apple that has moved from green to red and is ready to be harvested. And what is true of Jesus ultimately will be true of all of us. We know we will all be raised because Jesus has been raised. And once that, you know, it's the process of nature and to some degree. Then once that first apple turns red, the rest are going to follow. The rest on that tree. All right, if that imagery is good for you, great. If not, moving right along. Jesus' resurrected body was a physical body. Remember this, when his disciples saw him, they took hold of his feet. His disciples ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In his new body, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it. He invited Thomas to touch his hands and his side. Jesus physically rose from the dead with a body made of flesh and and bones, Luke says in Luke 24. Except that his body was not exactly like our body. You know this, because, of course, he could appear inside locked rooms. 
which we have in John 20, which is such like a silly thing for us to think. Like, why did they make like bother to point out that the room was locked and Jesus appeared? I think we kind of interpret that through all the ghost stories and movies we have seen over the years. It's kind of hokey, like Casper shows up in the room, the friendly ghost. And okay, well, this was significant enough for them to include because what it pointed out was the power of the resurrected body is not bound by time and place. And right now our bodies are. And we are longing for bodies that are not. And Jesus, ding, 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 in his resurrected body was not bound by time and space. He also looks slightly different. Mary doesn't recognize him. Remember that? Man, we're running out of time. Okay, so what does that mean for our bodies? Well, we have this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly spirits so that they will be like no, our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Jesus is the model. His body is the model for our resurrected bodies, but he's also the means by which our bodies are going to become like his body. Remember that, that graph or, or that diagram of moving from the sin and life, death box to the life box. So side note here, this is why for centuries Christians did not cremate their dead because of this belief that if God was going to raise our bodies, he needed some bodies to work with, okay? It's also the reason why historically most churches were surrounded by graveyards because you would show up and you were reminded of death, so from ashes to ashes, dust to dust, so we're all going towards death. But also it's, it's this kind of real imagery that when God comes back to raise all the bodies, he's going to know where to look. They're at the church. He's not going to have to go looking for him, right? He's going to have all these bodies right here at the church. Okay, I, I'm not opposed to cremation personally. I plan to be cremated. You know, Adam was, was created from what? Dust. The, the war, cosmos were created from nothing. That's a commitment of Christian faith. He created out of nothing, ex nihilo. So um, the hard work is, is new creation. The, the, the matter that God is working with is not going to limit God, Okay. But I do understand that argument. And many would say that the reason Christians should not be cremated is just as a, as a message to the world that we believe our bodies will matter eternally. And so it's like your, your last sermon is the sermon of your body after your death. That's a fair argument. It's just a, it's an expensive argument. <laughs> All right, okay, so. All right, so what Paul's asking us to imagine here is this. That there will be a new mode of physicality which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. It will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body as our present body is more substantial, more touchable than a disembodied spirit. We sometimes speak of someone who has been very ill as being a shadow of their former self. If Paul's right, a Christian in this present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self that person will be when the body that God has waiting in his heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure, and put on over the present one or over the self that will still exist after bodily death. So this is kind of a cool image. Remember Casper the Friendly Ghost. Well, you and I have a better body than Casper the Friendly Ghost or a body you can touch. And his point is the bodies that you and I will receive will be better, more like bodies than the bodies we're in right now. And that's hard for us to conceptualize, but he's, what he's saying is the bodies we will inhabit eternally will be more real than the bodies we inhabit now. This here, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. 
And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So here's, so we'll end with this because we're running out of time. I've got more stuff, but we'll stop. So, Uh, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road with resurrection. That what we believe, if you go back to that original diagram, is that our spirits, our souls, have already undergone resurrection in the baptismal water. And in the same way that during the ten plagues of Egypt that the houses were marked with blood and the angel of death passed over those houses, it is our resurrected souls, or spirits, that will be the clue to God that these are the people whose bodies need to be raised as well. Um, and I love that imagery that, of the blood over the doorpost, that in some ways our resurrected spirits are the blood over our doorposts. And that because of what is true of our spirits now, that they are resurrected and enjoying that new life that God is calling us up into. Um, because of that, God is gonna make that true of the whole of us, including our bodies. And that's what will happen when we're resurrected. Um, Man, I've actually got a lot more, but we'll just stop there. And um, it's a good, it's a good topic. Oh, okay. I'll take one minute. This is in Romans four twenty-five. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So the resurrection of Jesus is for you, is what these are saying. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this is in the church of the early Savior in Istanbul. And um, this is uh, basically a a drawing of the harrowing of hell, which is a tradition we don't talk a lot about. And it's a really hard case. It is hard to know exactly what Jesus was up to for those three days that he was dead. And in some traditions, that language, they use the language of the harrowing of hell. What Jesus does is he goes down and he breaks open the gates of hell in that time when he dies. Okay, think again about the circumcision image or what's happening down in the waters of baptism. He breaks open those gates and he begins pulling out all who were formerly in the bondage of death. So does anybody know who this is in that? Moses. Moses is in the picture. He's over here. This is Adam and Eve, so the first sinners, basically in this image. And so these are the gates of hell right here. The gates of Hades shall not prevail. And that um, he comes in and he, he grabs all these who had formerly been in the bondage of death and he's bringing them to new life. So what the resurrection that is true of Jesus is true of all people is what they're claiming. And, and you know, this is, just, this is just artwork. But, you know, if you look at here, what I, the image I love is it's because of the resurrection of Jesus, what's true of our spirits already, that when we die, you know, Jesus still stands there metaphorically at those gates and grabs those who belong to him is the image. No, 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 don't, don't head down there. You belong to me, right? You, you have been resurrected, and I'm going to make that true of your body now as well. And so that's just a cool, cool image. Okay. I mean, again, uh, Paul says, First Corinthians there, that the resurrection is the center of our faith. And I think that's right, the cross and the resurrection. And we'll end with, we'll end with that. Okay. Let's see, sir. Yep. Yeah, it looks good.